This could be the last straw. Uh, maybe you've heard about the national crime wave. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. Uh, anyway, out in L.A., the newest thing is follow home crime. Organized gangs uh, scope out people coming from fancy restaurants, other places where rich people go. And when they see lots of jewelry, for example, they follow the people home and then they rob them, I guess, in their driveway. I don't know. Then there's the smash and grab when guys just walk into jewelry stores, smash the case, grab what they want and leave. And, of course, there's that shoplifting epidemic in California since they made it uh, a misdemeanor for anything under $950, I think it is. But that's not what Ian Calderon is focused on. He's the majority leader in the California House, and, of course, he's a Democrat. Uh, He's introduced a bill to stop sit-down restaurants from, are you ready, offering customers plastic straws with their drinks, unless they specifically request one. And if a server were to serve a drink with an unrequested plastic straw, he or she would face up to six months in jail and a fine up to $1,000. And I'm not making this up. Ian says, and there's a quote, uh, we need to create awareness around the issue of single-use plastic straws and its detrimental effects on our landfills, waterways, and oceans, unquote. Of course, the whole plastic thing is a myth, which we've done a pretty good job here of exposing with the help of John Tierney of City Journal. But that's not going to sway anybody in the California legislature. And you wonder how this law is going to be enforced. I mean, would customers be ratting on servers? Would, you know, call 911? I just saw somebody give him a, he gave him a drink. It had a plastic straw in it. Get somebody over here quickly. The SWAT team comes in. Anyway, uh, or would undercover cops be stationed in restaurants? And would, if, would due process for these uh, violators mean, you know, the use of public defenders, uh, the crowds, uh, overcrowding of the jails? This is not a small thing in L.A., and don't be surprised if the law passes. And by the way, don't be surprised now that we have a plastic bag uh, ban in the city of Pittsburgh. This is next in Pittsburgh. No more plastic straws. Without a doubt, it's coming. Meanwhile, when we come back, we're going to talk about the real crime wave in the United States, who's being affected by it most and who's causing it. And in our second half hour, we're going to have a pediatrician here to talk about the stupidity of putting masks on kids ever. Stick around. Balance of Nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. Well, I drive a truck for a living. I don't get hardly any exercise. I'm not kidding you now. I'm not easily sold on anything, but I'm a firm believer in this product. You know, I watched those uh, advertisements for two or three years and listened to the radio going down the road. And I said, something's got to be going on with that product for that many people to do ads for them. And I'll tell you what, I, I just up town a while ago. I told some of my buddies, I said, I'm not BSing you, man. I'm not kidding you. It's amazing. It totally amazes me. Experience the Balance of Nature difference for yourself. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Start your journey to better health today by calling 1-800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. 
We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 3388 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 3388. Enjoy. This view was worth a hike. Right? And it's a good way to stay on top of my health. Yes, I'm Cologuard, a prescription colon cancer screening option for people 45 plus at average risk. Have you screened for colon cancer? Not yet. Don't wait. It's more treatable when caught in early stages. Tell me more. Cologuard is non-invasive and it's used at home. It detects altered DNA in your stool to find 92% of colon cancers. 92%? Yep, even those in early stages. This was seen in a clinical study with patients 50 and older. Any positive result should be followed by a diagnostic colonoscopy. False positive and negative results may occur. Cologuard is not a replacement for colonoscopy in high-risk patients. Do not use if you have had adenomas, have inflammatory bowel disease and certain hereditary syndromes, or a personal or family history of colon cancer. Most insured patients pay $0. Ask your provider or an online prescriber if Cologuard is right for you. Or visit Cologuard.com. I'm in. Are you wondering if this year you'll still be asking why it seems so easy for other people to find love but so hard for me? If you're feeling the pain of being alone and are tired of everyone around you finding their soulmates and leaving you behind, then get ready to remove the barriers to finding the marriage of your dreams and start believing it's possible for you. Hi, I'm Jackie Dorman. Join me in my Married in 12 Months Challenge, where I'll teach you why now is your time to find love, what are the lies that are holding you back, why God wants you to be married, the biblical law of attraction, and the tools you need to become a bride. Listen, if you deeply desire to be married, but you're still single, you should be doing something about it. Sign up for my free Married in 12 Months 5-Day Challenge at lovestories.com. The only thing you have to lose is the pain of being alone on your journey. So join me at lovestories.com. That's lovestories.com. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. Well, we are riding a crime wave right now. Maybe you've noticed uh, we're especially riding a violent crime wave. They're up almost, uh, I'm talking about violent crimes now, they're, they're up almost 100% in the last 10 years. Giancarlo Canaparo at the Daily Signal took a dive into the FBI numbers. He's here to tell us what he found. Giancarlo, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've had you on before. I appreciate you coming back. Um, the uh, the headline at the Daily Signal is who suffers the most from America's crime wave. So uh, who suffers the most? Well, like you said, crime is way way up. Violent crime is way way up. We're looking at double, and in, in the case of homicide, triple what things were like uh, a year ago. Uh, and where crime falls the heaviest is on African American communities, both uh, in absolute terms and in terms of uh, the relative increase in crime. Uh, African-American communities are bearing not only uh, a large number of crimes, but a higher percentage of total violent crimes uh, from just 10 years ago. Now, the numbers of year to year, last year to this year, did you say they doubled this year? 
uh, they doubled over the last uh, the course of the last ten years. Ten so years. When we're that's that's at what I thought it was. Yeah. Crimes, yeah, violent crimes in total and homicides. We're looking at something closer to triple. Yeah. So so they're triple the number of murders right now in the United States. Uh, those numbers are actually from 2011 to 2020. So. I'm guessing uh, in the last couple of years, uh, would anybody be surprised if there are this, that pace has kept up and maybe in, increased? No, in fact, um, what you know, what we've, you know, the, the FBI data only goes through 2020, but uh, we have preliminary numbers from states uh, for 2021 at least, and we're looking at uh, those numbers are even higher than they were just the year before. And that's amazing. And why don't these numbers really tell the whole story anyway? Yeah, well, like you said, the FBI numbers, uh, these are not complete. Uh, the, the number, the true numbers are going to be a lot higher. Um, F, the FBI's numbers are uh, voluntarily gathered from law enforcement agencies that, that uh, offer their uh, local statistics, but not every uh, local agency does. So uh, in 2020, about 3,000 law enforcement agencies didn't offer their numbers. So when we see things like 640,000 violent crimes, uh, the, the, the numbers are actually much higher than that. Oh, are you aware of which or where these um, agencies that did not comply or not, not offer the information, where are they? Or is it possible that they are in some of the worst areas? It's possible. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that the FBI releases which ones are not participating. Yeah. But, you know, there's no reason to think they're in any one place or another. It could be, you know, a city here, or a farm there. But uh, what we do know is the numbers are going to be a lot worse in truth than the FBI data suggests. And not many people are aware of that. You dove into these numbers, and so you know, and you looked into it. But don't most media outlets just report that FBI number, which means that most people who do pay attention to the news and, and hear those numbers being thrown out, they may think the crime wave is bad, but they're really, they have no idea how bad it actually is. Most people don't. Right. Right. That's right. And when I was digging through the FBI statistics, you know, I found other, other stats that the media is not going to report for, for various political reasons. But when we, when we say that, that crime is falling heaviest on African-American communities, that's true. Uh, but when we look at who's committing crimes, uh, the percentage of violent offenders and, uh, and murderers who is black is also increasing. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they're committing a higher percentage of the crimes. Uh, but the interesting thing is that that hasn't always been the case. With homicides, the uh, percentage of uh, black murderers or, or percentage of total murderers who were black was falling uh, from 2011 until 2019, uh, and in 19 and 20, we saw big spikes again. Uh, so, you, and, and, you know, it's, it's painful that, that uh, the African-American community is bearing a heavier burden on both sides of the criminal equation. Yeah, and, and how do the numbers on homicide victims break down? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, African-Americans are bearing the brunt of uh, being victims of crime. Now, remember, African-Americans, which includes people that identify as multiracial uh, on the U.S. Census, they only make up about 14% of the U.S. population, uh, but more than half of all murder victims and murderers. So this is, you know, this, this sort of crime is just taking a catastrophic toll uh, on that community. And, and the, the numbers in, in, uh, overall are up 
for blacks, 3.2%, but they're down for whites? On, right. on victims so, I'm uh, talking about, yeah. That, yes, both as victims and as offenders, uh, whites are making up a smaller percentage of both of those figures. Uh, so fewer, fewer white victims, fewer white offenders. Uh, for other uh, racial groups, Native Americans and Asians, uh, those are either up very small or holding constant. That shouldn't, that shouldn't surprise anybody, who, again, who pays attention to the news. Um, the, the, it's, for some reason, it's Chicago that you always see the, the – every Monday or Tuesday, you see the numbers from the previous weekend and uh, the number of um, murders, number of shootings, which is also – because we're not just talking about homicides here. We're talking about violent crime. So uh, an attempted murder is a violent crime. Um, it's, they, you, you see that, and – you wonder what it will take to get people to pay more attention to it, especially leaders in the uh, you know uh, black politicians, black uh, people in government who have the power to maybe do something about it. Uh, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Look, I mean, the, the African American community is just constantly devastated by crime. This crime wave falls disproportionately on them. Uh, they bear a lot of the brunt. Uh, but at the same time, uh, increasingly large number of the offenders and with murderers, more than 50% of murderers are themselves black. Uh, and yet we just don't see, uh, you know, especially Democrats um, in politics are not interested in that second statistic. That, that is really troubling, a uh, troubling statistic for them to deal with when they want to be the party uh, of, you know, racial justice. Uh, but you can't be the party of racial justice and not deal with both sides of the equation on crime. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, when you mentioned that there were um, some other stats that the the media won't or don't report um, that they don't report them because they're they don't fit the political narrative they'd like to have. What are some of those? Right. Well, that's the big one. Uh, one of the other ones that I thought was uh, somewhat surprising is that the number of um, uh, vic- uh, victims of homicide who are Asian actually is the same in 2020 as it was in 2011. Uh, there was a, the, a big push prim- primarily on social media uh, to paint this picture that there was an endemic of um, uh, uh, violence pre- predominantly by white people against Asian people. Uh, that, that was uh, that they uh, progressives tried to blame on Donald Trump's narrative. Uh, and that just isn't borne out in the uh, FBI's data. All tied in with the Wuhan virus. We were, every time uh, an Asian person was the victim of a crime, not every time, but very often, the media would portray it as somebody taking the frustration of the COVID-19 epidemic uh, out on Asians because, it, you know, the, the Donald Trump uh, described it as the Wuhan virus and said that it came from China, and people didn't like that, right? Yeah, that's right. There, you know, there was any anything that he said that could be fit into uh, the narrative was was done so. But uh, you know, at least through 2020, we just didn't see that kind of violence borne out against uh, Asian victims. Are there any numbers on the rate of recidivism um, now compared to say 10 or 20 years ago? Are violent criminals I guess, first of all, less likely to go to jail now, or are they more likely to spend less time there if they do go? 
Well, this isn't captured in the FBI statistics, but in other statistics, uh, yes. And this is another phenomenon uh, called the rogue prosecutor problem, where uh, especially very liberal prosecutors in liberal jurisdictions uh, took advantage of some of the COVID mercy policies, if you will, or COVID uh, compassionate release policies uh, and released um, violent offenders in some cases who went back to commit other crimes or simply uh, refused to prosecute certain crimes that they deem low level. Uh, and the result has been uh, in jurisdictions that have these rogue prosecutors, uh, just explosions in violent crime and uh, in serious recidivism uh, cases. So many of these uh, rogue prosecutors are being sued or, or uh, are the subject of recall efforts uh, after um, someone that has committed a violent crime is released by them and goes on to, uh, to commit further violent crimes, oftentimes murder. Uh, and then you've got these prosecutors eating crow because they failed their duties to uh, protect the public. Yeah, and, and uh, just an example, the, the guy that they've arrested uh, and charged, or not charged, uh, yeah, he's been charged with um, the shootings in the New York subway the other day. Um, they, they, it took them like six minutes to run down the list of uh, arrests uh, that this guy uh, has had and, and his record. Um, but they didn't have any felonies. And I'm just wondering, and I know this wasn't part of your story, I just kind of thought of this now. Maybe you're a good guy to ask mm-hmm. of this because you, you study this stuff. Um, how, how, how much of that, of the fact that he had all these arrests and, and, and is still out running around on the street, is because maybe what could have been a felony was, uh, was, uh, was a ple- a ple- ple- pleaded down to a misdemeanor. And so, therefore, so I, they, he can't be sentenced yeah. to the amount of time he should spell, uh, spend in jail. So I haven't seen his record in particular, but this is a problem with other violent criminals in these jurisdictions. What it boils down to is there, there's, a, there's a, a failure of priorities here. These rogue prosecutors, these very liberal, progressive prosecutors, are very concerned about being compassionate to people who commit crimes, and they have totally forgotten that they need to have some compassion for people who are the victims of crime as well. And they are just on the, they've tipped that scale way too far, uh, and people are going to suffer because of their progressive policies on uh, catch, release, and lower sentence. Yeah, I, I wonder um, how much of that is uh, politically motivated because of the uh, pushback or the uh, the outrage that might come from the black community if a, if a guy is too severely punished and then it cries of racism. Right. Well, one of the big things that motivates these rogue prosecutors is what they call racial equity. And that means that you need to fix racial disparities. Now, so uh, if, if a racial disparity is that, say, in, in the case of the FBI statistics, 54% of murders are committed by black people. Uh, racial equity means that you need to stop arresting so many black people who commit murders uh, or do whatever you can to uh, lower that number so it's uh, more equitable with uh, white murders. The problem with that is you're ignoring the fact that every murder is an individual person making an individual bad decision, and the criminal justice system punishes individuals uh, it's not dealing in group-wide remedies. And when the, when the criminal justice system tries to do group-wide remedies, uh, all sorts of horrible consequences are the result, like uh, people being let off in the name of group equity and hurting and killing individual people 
uh, who have a duty or have a right to be protected by their government. And we see that everywhere. Again, this is not the subject of uh, of your piece. And we're talking to Giancarlo Canaparo of the Daily Signal, and he, he looked into the FBI numbers uh, on crime, and it really is really doing damage to uh, black people in the United States. Um, uh, are there, what, what is um, a race essentialist rhetoric? Yeah, so one of the things that has come out of this, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, what you call this anti-racist or woke or criminal, critical race theory-inspired rhetoric. Uh, and it's, you know, when, when uh, Donald Trump called the uh, COVID-19 the Wuhan virus and they said, well, that's going to lead to uh, all the anti-Asian violence. Or they'll say things like, you know, ultimately uh, we need to segregate public schools, as, as we have in some cases here and there, because... Uh, you know, black people need a safe space or uh, any of this woke rhetoric that we hear, which all what it boils down to really is to divide uh, by race, to say white whiteness is evil. Uh, we live in a society that is racked, uh, that is inherently systemically white supremacist. Uh, all of this sort of rhetoric, what it does is it divides people on the basis of race. It says, you know, we can't strive for for uh, equality and integration and a, and, a, and a country where people are judged by the content of their character and not their skin. And it says that's all too hard. We need to judge people by the content of their skin, by the color of their skin, uh, for the sake of doing racial equity. But what that does is it divides people by race. And it, it inspires bitterness and partisanship. We've seen that in studies, uh, you know, over time in other countries here. Um, and uh, so you get a situation where there's a lot of race-based anxiety. Uh, it's similar to what we saw in the 1960s with the Black Power Movement. And a very famous historian named C. Van Woodward uh, observed this. And he said, look, what happened, uh, just, like, you know, just like we're seeing today in the Black Power Movement, the anti-police riots, you had uh, race essentialist rhetoric that divided people by race that manifested into uh, what he called uh, frustrations and episodes of violence. Uh, by predominantly young black people. And the great irony that he observed was that where did those young black people do violence? In black communities. And who was mostly hurt? The working class black people around them. And we're seeing a similar parallel now today, especially after the uh, riots, uh, after the murder of George Floyd. Those riots did catastrophic damage to the tune of just billions and billions of dollars uh, to black communities, black-owned businesses. Yeah, and um, I, I'm old enough to remember the Black Power movement. I was in college uh, for for part of it, but and I was around for the riots after the Martin Luther King assassination. Um, and uh, the places that burned here in Pittsburgh were not in the white suburbs; they were in the city. And that's that's what that's uh, over 50 years ago now. And uh, so we're, it's, it's coming back. And I, I actually. Uh, I've heard some people mention that as a reason for people like the guy in uh, Brooklyn, the guy who uh, drove his truck into a Christmas parade. Uh, that was in Michigan, I believe. Um, and it's something that people don't seem to want to face, that this is what that, that, that could be a, a major cause of what we're seeing here, that kind of thing. Yeah, ultimately, you know, there's, we're going to need to do a lot of research on that point, but there are studies from other countries that have shown that uh, this sort of rhetoric uh, that divides people by race uh, inspires race violence. And given the historical parallels 
that we saw with, after the Black Power movement and the, the terrible violence done to black communities there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the problem here, in addition to things like uh, rogue prosecutors and uh, police being pulled back from the front lines like they are oftentimes in some liberal jurisdictions. Giancarlo, I'm out of time. I appreciate you coming on. Great piece at the Daily Signal. People should check it out. Uh, and uh, and those, you really do a good job of breaking down all those FBI numbers. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's Giancarlo Canaparo of the Daily Signal. We will be right back. With SRN News, I'm Bob Agnew in Washington. We are here today to defend those who can't defend themselves. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis today signing into law a bill that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. This is a, uh, a time where these babies have beating hearts. They can move. They can taste. The Biden White House already pushing back. Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. The president believes in codifying Roe versus Wade. Wade. Uh, we, we do know that women's constitutional rights are under attack all across the country. The move comes amid a growing conservative push to restrict abortion ahead of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that could limit access to the procedure nationwide. The man charged in this week's Brooklyn subway attack has been ordered held without bail. Prosecutors saying he terrified the entire city. Frank James appeared in federal court a day after his arrest for allegedly shooting 10 people. This is SRN News. About to compare a pepper shaker to a cash-out refinance. Hang with me. You know when you're at a restaurant and they ask, would you like some fresh ground pepper? And then they crank that giant tube, but almost nothing comes out. For me, only a certain amount of time is socially acceptable to wait. I know that getting that pepper out might make my life better, but it just seems too impossible. And that's what we hear people say about the cash out refinance. People realize that the value of their home has gone up like hot pepper the last few years, leaving all this extra money sitting inside their home. But is it too hard to get out? It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage. If you're interested in cashing out the extra pepper in your home, We're good at doing all the work while you just sit back and relax. And often, your mortgage payment and years in the loan will stay the same. If you'd like to hear about your options, we are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Metal Park Road, Melbourne, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to Animalist Consumer Access. Federal Corporate Animalist Number 1330. Equal housing lender. I license in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Utah. Dennis Prager worries for the next generation. Almost half of Gen Z and millennials would rather be unemployed than unhappy in a job, according to a new study. If this article is true, we're in trouble, and these uh, sort of spoiled brats are in trouble. I won't work till I am happy at the job. The Dennis Prager Show, weekdays at noon, right before Sebastian Gorka at 3 on AM 1250. The answer. Spring is here and riding season has begun. This is John Steigerwald and Pit Cycles has the new ride you're looking for. Or accessorize your current bike with their vast selection of parts, accessories, and riding gear. With demand outstripping supply for Indian motorcycles, now's the time to place your pre-sold order. Or choose their new Triumph line with 30 bikes currently in stock for immediate delivery. Pit Cycles, your home for Indian, Triumph, KTM, Royal Enfield, and later this summer, BMW. Check them out at PitCycles.com. Pit Cycles! AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. WPGP Pittsburgh. W223CS Pittsburgh. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on the answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in, iHeart, or Odyssey. Windows are us. You tried the rest, now try the best. 
When it's time to replace your roof, siding, gutters, and downspouts, entry doors, and, of course, windows, you can count on Windows R Us, the area's premier exterior replacement company. This is John Steigerwall. With over 50 years' experience in the home remodeling industry, Windows R Us offers repair and replacement for all your exterior home projects. Why pay double with some other companies? Windows R Us will always give you the best price on the best in-class products, backed by the best warranties in the industry, all with zero sales pressure. And speaking of zero... Right now, get zero interest financing for 12 months and no processing fee with prices set to increase on all exterior products. Lock in your quote today. Schedule a free estimate and inspection today at windowsarustpittsburgh.com. You've tried the rest, now try the best. windowsarustpittsburgh.com. Stuck in traffic? We've got the answer. We are still looking at significant tie-ups here in the Pittsburgh area. It's been jammed all over the map all afternoon. A couple of accidents still with us. One on 28 inbound right near Delafield Avenue causing a big jam up there. Your jam up starts right around Fox Chapel Road. And another one came and went pretty quickly on the Parkway East outbound right near the Edgewood Avenue overpass. Nonetheless, a significant tie-up remains in that case as well. That's your latest look at traffic. I'm Eric Herr. AM 1250, The Answer. Weather. We'll see a moonlit sky for tonight with a low of 42. Mostly sunny and breezy tomorrow. Tomorrow's high, 65. Overcast skies tomorrow night with an evening shower in spots, followed by rain and drizzle late, the low 49. Saturday, we'll see a passing morning shower or two. Otherwise, it will be mostly cloudy and cooler. We'll reach a high Saturday of 57. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm forecaster Drew Shannon. This is the John Stackerwalt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. As far as I know, kids between the ages of 2 and 5 are still required to wear masks in uh, the New York City schools. And this was done because of an uptick in cases, they said. Pretty sure it was 364 new cases in a city of 8 million people that led to that. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, here we are, two and a half years in, and the insanity continues And we're wondering when we will return to normal. Kristen Walsh is a pediatrician and advocacy and and belongs to an advocacy group called Urgency of Normal. And she joins us now. Kristen, thanks for being here. No problem. So uh, uh, Urgency of Normal is an interesting name for a website. Can you give us a little history on that and tell us what the website's all about? Yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, I kind of, I have spent most of my career in the area of early childhood advocacy and through various, you know, social media groups, I kind of connected with other doctors and scientists who are really questioning some of our COVID mitigation measures, especially as they relate to children and young adults. And, you know, we kind of found each other. We have everything from virologists to CDC scientists, other pediatricians and you know, family doctors, and we we got together and created a toolkit for parents who wanted sort of hard evidence and data to take to school boards and for other child advocates. And so that's why we created the group and and the website there with the with the toolkit on it. And, and how long is it? Have you been doing this? Let's see. I think we came out with the toolkit. Um, few months ago and we're actually working on the the first toolkit on there which is really literally just a powerpoint presentation that anyone can download and use and i want to say it was january it came out 
and um, we're actually working on branching out. We're working on toolkits for um, what we call the littles, the little kids mm-hmm. um, under five, and a- another group is working on the college edition, you know, toolkit. So we're we're going to continue to try to help people and, and get the, the data and science out there for people to use to advocate for themselves and their children. So if you're headed to a school board meeting uh, about this, about whatever kind of mandate you want to see go away, um, you can go there armed with um, numbers from a, of a pediatrician and uh, and throw those at the people who are trying to enforce these mandates or create them. Yeah, and in fact, I actually did do that for my own kids' school district, and I went to the school board meeting, and, you know, I'm very happy that uh, my kids now don't have to wear a mask anymore in in high school, and I know, you know, a a lot of us who created the toolkit have been going to our own school board meetings, and I encourage all parents to really do that. I think that's what it's going to take to move the needle. Has it ever made sense to put a mask on a toddler? So, you know, we are really pretty much world outliers in terms of mandated masking for kids under six. Um, Actually, the World Health Organization specifically recommends against that and even against masking like child care providers, unless they say, you know, community rates are crazy high, but they really try to discourage that because, um, and they, they talk right on their website about the importance of seeing faces for young children, for learning language, for early literacy skills, for socio-emotional learning, which is very important. And um, so we really are the only country who's been doing that in terms of a a prolonged period or or at all. And, you know, there are a few little isolated parts of Canada, primarily Ontario, where you'll you'll see it. But but really, otherwise, nobody else is doing that. And and this is not just toddlers. It's uh, older kids, too, right? Well, I mean, I think um, the WHO uh, itself, you know, kind of has more provisional guidance for masking kids 5 to 11, but it's much narrower than the way that we've used it in this country. I mean, they really recommend using masks on a much more limited basis than than we have done here. So I I do think actually um, it's worth asking, you know, how masks affect all children. And I I really think that it affects, you know, the socio-emotional learning of, of children of all ages. And I think it affects the social lives of teenagers when they, you know, can't see their friends' faces for mm-hmm. months and now years on end. And um, I, I personally think it's, it's having a huge toll for kids of all ages, actually. Yeah, I want to get into in a minute uh, what, it, you know, the specifics of, of what it does to a kid, uh, it, not just the toddlers, but the a little bit older to not see faces. But um, just in general, what's what do you think has been the effect of the exaggeration of these of the danger of uh, COVID for kids? They were never uh, in danger of uh, dying at any at, other than at a microscopic, statistically anyway. They they weren't in ever ever in any danger. What's been the effect of the uh, I call it hysteria over what the, the way uh, kids have been treated? Well, I mean, I think it's important to remember that um, our media has really treated the issue of COVID in kids much differently than in, you know, many other countries, in particular Scandinavian countries where parents have been, you know, reassured that children are generally very low risk for COVID. And it's, it's a very odd phenomenon here. And it's not like we don't have the science to show us otherwise, you know, um, 
here in New Jersey, where I am, we're very close to the nation's premier children's hospital, which is the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And they have something called a policy lab, which is like a think tank that makes recommendations for policy. And the policy lab has official statements out there that say, you know, for young children, COVID is not as much of a threat as, for example, RSV, which is another seasonal respiratory virus that's been around forever. And seasonal flu. So those other two viruses are, are significantly more dangerous than COVID for young children. And, you know, they say that, you know, for older children, COVID is a, a, a similar threat to other seasonal viruses. Um, so, you know, we have this guidance out there and um, that's not what most parents get from the media that they are exposed to. They're very scared and they've, you know, in my experience, they've done things to really radically change their behavior around their children. We're seeing lots of kids who were never sent to preschool, you know, and, and finally are being sent to kindergarten just with, with sort of zero academic preparation. And we're really seeing, you know, pretty much everywhere, you know, elementary school teachers are reporting, you know, first graders that basically aren't even close to being able to read and, and don't have, you know, our, our literacy numbers are way down. And so I, I do think these things have real consequences across the board. And what kinds of problems are you seeing in your office every day uh, that uh, you know are, are a result of masks and lockdowns or both? Well, you know, I, I work in a pretty diverse clinic setting. So I, I have, you know, I see doctors and lawyers, kids, but I also see plenty of kids on Medicaid. And also, you know, I'm in touch with pediatricians from all over the country who work in very similar clinic settings. And I think we all have very similar stories in terms of what we're seeing on a day-to-day basis. Um, I was just, you know, speaking with a pediatrician from Ohio in a very similar clinic setting. And in one day she saw, you know, like a, a two-year-old who only could say five words and um, uh 16-year-old who gained 50 pounds in the last two years and um, another child who was very behind on social skills and really had some very minor medical condition that really didn't put that child at risk for COVID, but the parents were scared enough that they just like didn't send him to school for two years. So he'd been, you know, homeschooled. And um, I think we're all seeing just a ton of speech delay in toddlers and preschoolers we're seeing sort of a lack of social skills. We're seeing just crazy amounts of childhood obesity. I mean, kids that were a perfectly normal weight pre-pandemic and are now in like the, the severe obese category. And I, I think we, we see that all the time, every day. And I, I really feel that there's going to be just this avalanche of child health issues. It's already starting. And I, I'm just really worried about the long-term effects of all of it. Yeah, that's uh, some. Uh, somebody said somewhere just the other day, and I, I don't remember where I saw it, but um, talked about the fact that the media and uh, some of the people in government who have pushed all these things and created these issues for kids, the one thing they never talk about and never seem to even grasp, or if they do grasp it, they don't let they don't seem to be able to let anybody know that they're paying attention to it. What you just said is the long-term effects. Nobody knows. We've never we've never put masks on little kids or or kids in general for for two years b- before. So, uh, does anybody know what to expect? And and do they do enough people care about what might be coming down the road? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting point. I remember um, I spoke to there was an author, you know, writing a book about the pandemic and. I think I spoke to him in December of 2020 
and he asked me what I thought the biggest long-term health consequence of school closures and lockdowns. Now, remember, this is still 2020, right, the end of 2020, um, what I thought the biggest health consequence would be for children of those things. And at the time, I actually said obesity because I, I could just kind of already see how it was going to play out um, because, you know, we don't realize, I think, how much activity kids get at school by going to school. They're, you know, they're not on video games all the time. They don't have unlimited access to snacks and as many meals as they want. But that is the case, you know, when they're at home. And I think the whole virtual school thing was pretty much a disaster for keeping kids at at a healthy weight. And I don't, I mean, I, I see a lot of stuff on social media blaming parents. And I really don't because a lot of these parents were having to work from home, could not, you know, did not necessarily have a nanny to watch the kids or the resources to, you know, have somebody make sure that they were paying attention to virtual school. And I mean, you know, my, my husband and I are both physicians and my, my high school called me one day to tell me that one of my kids was not logged on to virtual school. And I mean, I, and I said, I don't know what you want from us. We're frontline physicians. We're not home. You know, we're not babysitting our 16 year olds, making sure they, they go to their online school. So I think it was really tough for a lot of parents and, I, I just actually saw that, that coming when we were just a few months in because I was already seeing that the weight increases in, in patients. And um, is the average person or, or average parent aware, uh, getting back to the kids, uh, little babies having to do this, um, um, is the average person or average parent aware of the importance of kids uh, and babies uh, being able to see facial expressions? Yeah, so this is a, another weird thing, you know, about about sort of how we've treated this pandemic. Um, any any preschool teacher, any kindergarten teacher um, can tell you the importance of, of seeing faces for kindergarten readiness for just, you know, all those things I mentioned before. And this is, you know, really the these are basic tenets of, of early education, but also like child psychology. This is just, and I mean, the WHO goes into this on their website about why they don't recommend masking kids under six. But, you know, in this country, we sort of got into this weird narrative about, oh, yeah, well, you you prove that little kids need to see paces. You know, you, you should just prove that they need to see them. And that's, first of all, that's sort of an odd take because, you know, saying they didn't need to see faces would go against, you know, just huge swaths of established knowledge about child development and early literacy. Um, but also that's also not generally the way we do medical interventions in little kids, right? We don't say, well, first, you know, you prove that it doesn't work. No, you, you have to prove something works before you implement it. And you also, you know, not for nothing, have to show that it's not going to cause any adverse effects. We don't just unleash, you know, new prescription drugs on little kids without making sure it's not going to hurt them first. And, to me, putting a mask on a kid under six is that really is like should be considered a medical intervention. Anybody with any common sense about child development would know that that, you know, little kids wearing masks for 10, 12 hours a day and having mass caregivers is going to affect speech development. Pretty good chance the mayor of New York City doesn't uh, is not all that aware of child development. I'm going to guess uh, the one who's making these kids to this. I believe I don't think it's been lifted yet. I was trying to find something that no. said it's been lifted. I think they're still making them wear them in New York City. No, it has not been lifted. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that far from New York City, and I, I'm in touch with a lot of um, parent advocates from there. And um, no, it has not. And it has, you know, made me wonder, like, you know, what are the policymakers in this country thinking? Are they thinking we're just smarter than the rest of the world, or we just love our kids more and nobody else loves their kids under six? 
I, I can't really make it make sense. And, you know, it, it's, I think we, we have the data to show what protects our vulnerable people. And, you know, that tends to be that the vulnerable people get COVID vaccines and our little kids are not in that group. And, you know, there's absolutely zero evidence that masking toddlers protects grandma. You know, what protects grandma is grandma's vaccine. And that's about it as far as we've gotten in this pandemic. You'd think uh, it's now it's two and a half years and they they still haven't figured that out. They haven't listened to people like you. It's stunning. Uh, I have a friend uh, who was a retired uh, school teacher. She taught fifth grade. And I asked her a while back about uh, if she would have had to, if if they would have made her wear a mask. And she said, it was interesting because she said, I I don't know how I could have done it because I had a look that I could give my students that they knew exactly what was going on. She didn't give me, I don't remember the specifics, but thinking back to when I was in school, the teacher could have an expression on her, his or her face, and I got, I got the message as a little kid, and she, if she doesn't know how you could teach without being able to, to see your, the expression on the kid's face and for them to see her expression. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a, a good friend who um, has been a preschool teacher, you know, her entire adult life, and um, she quit. And it, it wasn't because she was scared of COVID. It was because I think her job was getting so demoralizing and depressing when she just wasn't able to do any academics with these kids, wasn't able to prepare them for kindergarten because they were wearing masks and she was wearing masks. And, and she just she felt like she was being forced to do a terrible job, and she she decided to leave teaching, which is, to me, so sad. And what demographic, uh, and by the way, we're talking to uh, Kristen Walsh. She's a pediatrician and uh, belongs to an advocacy group group called Urgency of Normal. You can find it at Um, um, urgencyofnormal.com. What demographic is showing the biggest numbers of of kids who are speech delayed and, and all the other things that you talk about? Well, I mean, I, I want to say it's it's sort of that the, the two-year-old range. And um, I think people have to remember, and again, you know, I see a lot of dismissive comments about, oh, parents should do a better job and talk to their babies. Well, you know, if you have two working parents, um, a lot of parents, um, we don't have the family networks that we used to all the time. A lot of parents are very dependent on childcare. And, you know, these infants and toddlers are at childcare for 10, 12 hours a day. So you do the math when little kids go to bed, they get two to five hours a day at home with their parents and you know, 10 to 12 with mass caregivers. And so that's, you know, that that's not, that's not a, a fair comparison, right? I mean, the parents are trying to make up for all this time where those kids aren't seeing faces. And I'm not surprised that we're seeing the speech delays that, that we are. And is it um, more prevalent among uh, black kids? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the the evidence to date that we have shows that our more our more vulnerable kids have been more affected, you know, um, minority kids and lower socioeconomic status kids. And I think that's true for all of these downsides of these pandemic mitigation measures that we've been talking about in terms of obesity and speech delay, um, you know, social skills issues. Um, I think most of us in clinic settings, we are seeing more of that in our more vulnerable patients. And I've seen some papers come out to that effect as well. Okay, Kristen, I'm out of time. I really appreciate it. you coming on uh, and clearing this up, and you're doing good work there. I hope people will go on uh, the website, urgencyofnormal.com. Whenever this comes up with their school or any other organization that their kids belong to, they can go in there armed with uh, a lot of the stuff that you just told us here. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's Christian Walsh, pediatrician, and it's urgencyofnormal.com. We'll be right back. another person today, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz. President Trump endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz for Senate. Why? Because President Trump knows who the real conservative is who's going to shake up Washington. It's not David McCormick, the liberal pro-Biden, pro-China Wall Street insider. David McCormick praised Biden, is funded by Democrats, and admits he was never a Trump supporter, all while telling his friends back on Wall Street that his so-called conservative principles are just an act. President Trump knows the real conservative is Dr. Oz. Trump calls Dr. Mehmet Oz smart, tough, and someone who will never let us down. I endorsed another person today, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz. Endorsed by Trump, the conservative fighter Pennsylvania needs, Dr. Oz for U.S. Senate. I'm Dr. Mehmet Oz. I candidate for U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. Paid for by Dr. Oz for Senate. Make a difference in your life that impacts you for years to come by traveling to Israel this year. Sign up today for the thrill and excitement of visiting the Holy Land this November with nationally syndicated media host Dr. Sebastian Gorka and renowned author and filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. Visit StandWithIsraelTour.com for details and to register. On the tour, you'll step into history with mouth-watering cuisine, picturesque scenes, and magnificent people while visiting over 40 iconic sites and sacred places you've only read and heard about for years. Pray at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, float in the mineral-rich Dead Sea, and take a boat onto the middle of the Sea of Galilee as you experience something transforming in your life. Call 855-565-5519 to reserve your spot. Again, visit StandWithIsraelTour.com to book your trip today. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. I want to tell you a quick story. A guy I know uh, at work today, um, he, he, he kind of witnessed an accident where a, a guy, an older guy, went over a hill accidentally by putting his car in the wrong gear or something, and he ended up having to bail out of the car on the way down the hill, and uh, an older guy, and the people who saw it ran to see what happened and see if the guy's okay, of course. The guy was up walking around, and they they were asking if he's all right, and they, they, they figured they should call the cops. So the police come, and the cop's taking care of the guy. He says, hey, listen, I want to make sure you're okay. Uh, how you feeling? He says, I'm all right, I'm all right. He said, maybe you ought to go to the hospital. Nah, yeah. he said, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to the hospital. He said, well, listen, let me just hold on a second. Calm down. I want to ask you a couple of questions. What's your name? And the guy told him his name, you know, Bill Smith. And he said, who's president of the United States? And the guy said, who's president of the United States? He said, I wish it was Donald Trump, but it's that bleep, bleep, bleep Joe Biden. And the, and the cop said, you're good. Go ahead. Nice to see you. Good to talk to you. That was the end of the story. Loved it. How much time I got, Mike? I just want to really quick say how ridiculous it is to close with a sports uh, issue here. Clayton Kershaw, perfect game through seven innings. They took him out of the game. That tells you everything you need to know about how they've ruined the game of baseball. I'm off tomorrow. Hope you are, too. Hope you have a good Easter, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Bye.
John Staggerwald Show is a production of the Answer Pittsburgh and Salem Media Group.